0: you're listening to the sports island podcast with your host rick mitchell and now the sports island podcast hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of the podcast this is version 41 of the show and we have another real busy episode for you of course the NHL playoffs are underway. We'll get you caught up on all the first-round series there. Uh, the NBA playoffs, the play-in tournament has uh, concluded, and uh, we know the first-round matchups, so we'll get into a preview of those. And then, of course, in golf, we have a major championship this weekend, so we'll start off in the PGA Tour like normal. And uh, last weekend's tournament was the at and Byron Nelson, which was held at TPC Craig Ranch, in McKinney, Texas. It was a par 72. The distance was 7,468 yards. And this was the first time that the Byron Nelson was played at TPC Craig Ranch. Uh, the past couple of years, it's been at the Trinity Forest Golf Club in Dallas, and uh, they moved it up north to McKinney, which is about 25 to 30 miles north of Dallas. And uh, TPC Craig Ranch, they uh, had hosted a Corn Ferry Tour event previously, but never a PGA Tour event. So, uh, we came into this week, uh, of course, it's the weekend before the PGA Championship, but we still had a pretty good field. We had three of the top ten golfers in the world out there at Craig Ranch. And uh would have been four, but Dustin Johnson had to withdraw. And uh, during the uh, event, the course was super nice. Of course, we've had a lot of rain here uh, in Texas uh, the last couple weeks, so the course was in really good shape. Uh, the weather held up up until Sunday. But it was pretty windy, uh, usual Texas-style golf. You play golf down here in Texas, it's, uh, it's going to be windy, and uh, you're not going to be able to play the same as you would elsewhere. But uh, I mentioned uh, the weather held up for the most part on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But Sunday's tee times had to be moved up due to the inclement weather that we had. The final round was played in threesomes off of split tees due to the uh, large rainstorm that made its way through Dallas last Sunday. There was actually a few-hour weather delay towards the end of the, fir- of the final round. Uh, a lot of guys had already finished, but there was a few-hour delay. Uh, they did end up finishing the tournament under some rainy conditions, <clears throat> and your winner was Kyung Hoon Lee, K.H. Lee, 25 under par. Just an outrageous score. Uh, very, very low scores this weekend. Uh, it was K.H. Lee's first career PGA Tour victory. And, I mean, he was firing right out of the gate. Uh, he came out with a, a pair of 7 under 65s in his first two rounds, followed it up with a 5 under 67, and then closed with a 6 under 66 to win by three shots. Uh, really wasn't close at that point. Even when he picked his round back up after the rain delay, he looked like he hadn't had any time off. He was he was still still zipping it and putting it uh, right on the green, and uh, he was just played really solid all weekend. And never really let off the gas after those two seven under rounds to start. Second place was Sam Burns at twenty two under par, three shots back of Lee. And of course, Sam Burns uh, past few weeks he's been playing some damn good golf. Uh, two weeks ago, he we won the Valspar Championship and um, played pretty well last week as well. But uh, he opened up with a 7-under 65 and then followed that up with just an outrageous 9-under 62. Bogey-free round 9-under par on uh, Friday. And then he was actually the 54-hole leader yet again uh, coming into the Sunday's round. but. He managed to only shoot 5-under between both of his weekend rounds, Saturday and Sunday. He only went 5-under, which uh, was not good enough to catch K.H. Lee. So there was a four-way tie for third place. All of them were at 21-under par, which was one shot back of Burns and four shots back of Lee. The first one at 21-under par was Patton Kazir, and he shot a 69 and a 71 on his Thursday and Saturday rounds, so not not real great there. But his Friday and Sunday rounds went low. He went 64 and 63 on those rounds, and that was enough to get him inside the top three there. Just a really solid weekend of golf, and really he only had two rounds that pretty much carried him. So uh, that's all he needed were those that 64 and 63 on uh, Thursday or Friday and Sunday. Um, that really kind of catapulted him up the board uh the other uh, the next golfer at 21 under par t3 was daniel berger and berger after a red hot scorching start to this season uh, he won at pebble beach Uh, just was consistently inside the top 10 it's been a while since we've seen berger near the top of the leaderboard he kind of he kind of fell off quite a bit um Wasn't really in contention in this thing until Sunday. He opened with a 3-under 69, followed it up with a pair of 5-under 67s, which is good. But Sunday is where he did his damage. He went 8-under for a round of 64 on Sunday to jump all the way up into that T3 spot. The third guy that finished T3 was Scott Stallings. And he was another late bloomer this weekend. He was only six under par heading into the weekend which is for this tournament was not good but he fired another uh, round of nine under 63 on Saturday to really get his name up there and he closed with a respectable six under 66. So that got his score in that T3 range. Now the last guy that finished T3 was Charles Schwartzel and schwartzel has been playing some pretty good golf lately. We last heard from him at the Zurich Classic of New Orleans a few weeks ago uh, when he played alongside Louis Oosthuizen, and, and they uh, ended up losing in a playoff hole to Mark Leishman and Cam Smith. So he was the runner-up there at the Zurich. But he played good golf uh, here at, at the Byron Nelson this weekend. He actually opened with a 7-under 65 on Thursday, and, uh, which was a, a damn good score and then he ended up with a pair of four under sixty eights uh, on Friday and Sunday. His Saturday round was a six under sixty six, uh, which uh, really kind of again helped get his name near the top. Uh, he, you know, Charles Schwartzel always really he seems to be a sneaky pick, kind of in any tournament he's in. His name just kind of floats around into that uh, mid level to upper level area of the leaderboard. But let's check out Rick's Picks to Click from the AT&T Byron Nelson. The first one I gave you was Mark Leishman. He came in ranked number 38 in the world. His last two events, he had a T5 at the Masters and a win at the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, uh, of course, with his partner Cam Smith, so he'd been playing good golf. He's always historically played well in Texas, and i uh, like for him to finish inside the top 25, and he did that for me. He finished at 15 under par, which was a T21. So he opened with a a pretty good 6-under, 66 on Thursday and then really just kind of fell off the map. played mediocre golf the rest of the way. He was only 9-under through his final three rounds, which in a high-scoring event like this is not going to cut it. But it did get him a 15-under, a T21 finish, and a click for me. My second pick to click was Jordan Spieth. He came in ranked number 28 in the world and of course he's a dallas kid and he's been playing the best golf out of anybody on tour the last three months so he came out blazing hot he shot a nine under 63 he was the co-18 hole leader uh, at his home tournament he also had a six under 66 on saturday to help his cause and then really just kind of uh, friday and sunday was just below average golf for spieth he shot A 2-under 70 on Friday and a 1-under 71 on Sunday, which was not good enough to get him up near Lee and Burns, and that prevented him from winning his hometown tournament. But Spieth did finish at 18-under par, which was good for T9. So I got a top-10 finish out of Spieth. That's certainly a click. My final pick-to-click from the Byron Nelson was Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, he came in ranked number four in the world. And like Jordan Spieth, uh, DeChambeau lives in Dallas, and he had a wild weekend uh, the week before at Quail Hollow where he actually uh, flew home uh, thinking he missed the cut. Then he had to fly back early Saturday because he made the cut after – he found out he made the cut after he had already flown back home. So crazy weekend last week, but he still finished inside the top ten last week. This weekend – He was kind of the disappointment of my uh, three picks to click. He was sitting at 7-under heading into the weekend, which wasn't great but wasn't bad. Uh, He still had time to to make up the gap, but he only managed to card an even par round of 72 on Saturday, which effectively took him out of contention for anything because of the low scores we saw. Sunday, he did go 3-under to finish... Uh, His tournament at 10 under par, which was good for a T-55 finish and a miss by a mile on my pick to click. So uh, I clicked on two of the three this week. I was three for three at Quail Hollow last week uh, or two weeks ago, and I was two of three this past week at the Byron Nelson. But this weekend, we have a major championship. The second one of the year, it is the PGA Championship. That is held at the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island Golf Resort, and Kiowa Island is in South Carolina. The course itself as a par 72. Distance is just ridiculous. 7,876 yards. Massive course. Uh, just, In fact, it's the longest course in major championship history, so they have not played a longer course than this one in any major championship prior to this. The course is also resting alongside the Atlantic Ocean, hence the ocean course name. Uh, so this course actually features the most seaside holes in the northern hemisphere. So wind is definitely going to be a factor. Um, this is, you know, I would compare this course basically to a longer east coast version of Torrey Pines, we'll say. That's that's kind of elevated on the west coast, in the wind, on the shore, Uh, This is right up on the Atlantic Ocean and uh, definitely some wind factor uh, to consider on this course. Now, last year, the PGA Championship was played without fans in attendance, and that was at Harding Park in San Francisco, and as weird as it was, the golf was actually spectacular. It was just super eerie with no fans, so we get fans back this year. Of course, last year, Colin Morikawa was your winner at Harding Park for his first major championship now there's a few major storylines coming into this year's pga championship the first one is jordan spieth he's taken his fifth crack at uh, completing the career grand slam which is of course winning all four of the major championships he's got three of them the only one he doesn't have is the pga and you gotta love the way that spieth has been playing leading up to this tournament Uh, this is the best that he's ever been coming into the pga championship And he had another top 10 finish last week at the Byron Nelson. So uh, that is something to keep an eye on. The next storyline is that the American golfers have won five of the last, uh, have won the last five PGA championships in a row and seven out of the last 10. Rory McIlroy uh, winning it twice in between. But uh, American golfers have had much success at the PGA championship to the tune of five in a row. Um, as you'll see here, uh, two of my three picks to click are Americans. Uh, but the final storyline, of course, Dustin Johnson. He missed last week's Byron Nelson. He withdrew due to a knee injury that he was rehabbing. But uh, he is back in action this weekend, so we'll keep an eye on him. He's looking to add another major to his collection. But my picks to click that we that I just referenced, uh, my picks to click here for the PGA Championship at Kiowa Island. Uh, my first one is Jordan Spieth. He's a repeat from last week. He's ranked number 26th in the world. Um, why the hell wouldn't you pick Spieth right now? Uh, I picked him last week. I'm picking him again this week. He grabbed another top 10 finish last week at his hometown, Byron Nelson. And in Spieth's last nine starts, he's only finished worse than T15 just once. Okay? The dude's been out of control. Uh, th- that includes a win, five top four finishes in that time frame, last nine starts. No hotter player in the world. Uh, and since 2015, Jordan Spieth is 67 under par in major championships. That trails only Brooks Kepka's 98 under par, which is another absurd storyline, for lowest score in that time span. Okay, And again, I just mentioned it, this is his fifth chance at the Grand, uh, career Grand Slam, and he's catching it at the perfect time. Uh, if This just might be the year that he pulls it off. Uh, I don't think he'll have a better chance than this year to capture it the way he's been playing. So uh, Spieth there for the pick to click. My second one is going to be Rory McElroy. He's ranked number seven in the world. He was the runaway champion here in this event at this course back in 2012, and he skipped last week's Byron Nelson because he won the week before at the Wells Fargo Championship at Quail Hollow for his, uh, well, third career victory at Quail Hollow. So, he's proven that he can win at the same course more than once, and in his last 10 starts worldwide, he has missed three cuts, but in those seven events that he made the cut in, his worst finish was a T28. He also has a win and four top 10s in those uh, seven made cuts, the last 10 events. So when he has played, he's played pretty well. Um, so with, with the way that he got back on track uh, at Quell Hollow, I like for Rory to at least finish inside the top 25. Uh, my third pick to click for the PGA Championship is Xander Shoffley. He's currently ranked number four in the world, and in his last 15 starts, he has a win and seven top five finishes, including three second place finishes and a T3 at the Masters in April, where he probably could have won had he not collapsed on 16 on Sunday. But he's never won a major championship. He's certainly poised to do so this weekend, and he's a California kid. So he's used to that windy, coastal-style golf, like I mentioned with Torrey Pines. He's played there a whole bunch in his career, so he grew up playing at San Diego State as well, so uh, this course fits kind of how uh, Xander's used to play in golf, a little windy, but uh, he has uh, finished inside the top five in half of his last 15 starts, so Xander's playing some damn good golf, too, so I would look for him to be in contention this weekend at Kiowa Island. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and do a playoff update there. Uh, All of the first-round series are underway, and, of course, last week uh, I gave you my predictions for the first-round series. And uh, earlier this week, uh, some news came out. Of course, we've seen some of the U.S. teams have full capacity In their arenas, Uh, Carolina, Nashville, um, the Florida teams have had some fans, uh, but Canada, uh, they're still opting to go with this kind of bubble format with no fans. And they had a deputy chief public health officer come out and say that they do not see Canada joining the U.S. and allowing fans into the stands, but like a day or two after that announcement was made, Uh, the Montreal Canadiens announced that starting on May 28th, uh, they're going to start to allow 2,500 fans into the Bell Center. Uh, So it appears that this is going to be up to the individual teams and individual provinces uh, of Canada with regards to allowing fans into the venues. And uh, obviously fans make a huge impact on the game. As you've seen, Uh, the arena in Carolina and Nashville just absolutely electric so far in the playoffs. If you've watched any of those games, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or playoff hockey in the past, really. I mean, that's the fans make up the home ice advantage. Uh, but as far as the playoff update, let's jump into that. We'll start off uh, in the Central Division and talk about those top-seeded Carolina Hurricanes taking on the number four Nashville Predators. Well, Carolina was dominant uh, all season against the Nashville Predators, and uh, I picked Carolina to win this series in five games. And so far through the first three games, Carolina is up in this series two games to one. Uh, the first two games, Carolina was just completely dominant. They won 5-2 to two and then 3 nothing in a shutout. Well, game three was an exciting game. Uh, Carolina actually had a two-goal lead. Nashville erased that, took it to overtime, and in overtime, Matt Duchesne scored a beauty of a breakaway goal, To get the Predators on the board in the series. So that currently sits at two games to one uh, in favor of Carolina. Now, in the Battle of Florida, the other series in the Central Division, the number two Florida Panthers taking on the number three Tampa Bay Lightning. I predicted that Tampa Bay would win in seven games simply because they got Nikita Kucherov and Steven Stamkos back in the lineup. Well, what a boost that proved to be for the uh, Lightning because in game one, Kucherov had two power play goals and an assist, and Steven Stamkos added two assists, and he missed two open nets basically uh, for scoring chances. And then over in game two of that series, uh, Tampa Bay also uh, uh, had a big help from Steven Stamkos. Uh, he actually opened the scoring. Uh, scoring the lightning first goal. And then Kucherov had an assist in that one as well. Uh, Hedman had a couple of points, I think three assists. Um, But game three was just an absolute scoring fest. Uh, Tampa Bay took a two-goal lead into the third, but ended up losing six to five in overtime. So that series currently sits Tampa Bay two, Florida one. So that looks like the seven-game series that I projected because that is just back and forth. The teams are scoring goals left and right. Uh, That is going to be a fun, exciting series there. But we'll move over to the Mass Mutual East Division. The top-seeded Pittsburgh Penguins are taking on the number four-seed New York Islanders. All right, that series currently sits Pittsburgh 2, New York 1. So Pittsburgh has a 2-1 lead in the series, and... Uh, I mentioned the trade deadline acquisitions that the Islanders made, one of which was Kyle Palmieri. Well, that paid big dividends in game one because he scored two goals that game, including the overtime game winner. That was just an unbelievable shot from in tight, basically right at the between the bottom of the circle and top of the crease, that he just roofed it, and it uh, was a great goal. Game two was uh, really another... Um, tightly contested contest. Uh, Pittsburgh got a couple of first period goals and that's all they needed. Um, New York did manage to get one of those back but Pittsburgh's goalie Tristan Jari made 37 saves on 38 shots. Just a huge victory for the Pens and then in game three it was just a high scoring affair and Brandon Tanev actually got the game winning goal late in the third period with about four minutes left when he batted the puck out of the air. So my original prediction was Pittsburgh and six. They currently sit uh, with a lead of two games to one. So that's looking uh, good at the moment. The other series in the Mass Mutual East is the number two Washington Capitals and the number three Boston Bruins. Now, I predicted this series to go seven games, and I predicted that Boston would win. Uh, and so far to start, Boston has a three-to-one series lead. Okay, uh, the first three games in this series went to overtime. Okay, These two teams are about as even as it gets on paper and on the ice. Um, Washington's forward Nick Dowd tipped in the game winner in uh, game one. Brad Marchand scored the overtime game winner in game two. And then Craig Smith for the Bruins got the overtime winner in game three on a busted play by Elia Samsonov, the Capitals goalie. From behind the net, Florida had dumped it in uh, from the blue line. Samsonoff went behind the net, left it for his defenseman. Well, the the problem was is that the defenseman wasn't on the same page. Didn't get the puck. Craig Smith stuck in uh, snuck in there, took the puck and wrapped it around for the goal. And then uh, in game four, Boston just completely dominated that game and won uh, four to one. So uh, just. Uh, complete domination by the Bruins in that game. Bruins are up 3-1, to one, so uh, Washington has some work to do to get back into that series, but uh, my prediction of Boston winning is looking pretty good uh, in that one. But we'll move over to the Honda West division, and in that division, the top-seeded and President's Trophy-winning Colorado Avalanche are playing the number 4-seeded St. Louis Blues. Well, Colorado picked up right where they left off in the regular season uh, because they are just looking very dominant. They took game one, 4-1. to one. Nathan McKinnon is just a man possessed. He had two goals and an assist in the first game, and he just kept it going in game two. He had uh, a hat trick and an assist in game two. And then game three, the Avs just dominated uh, the Blues 5-1. to one. So Colorado currently sits three games to nothing in that series. I predicted Colorado in six, and man, that's seeming like that's uh, six games is going to be uh, a pipe dream for the Blues, the way they're playing. But uh, Colorado uh, is looking to complete the sweep here this week. But the other series in the Honda West division uh, is the number two Vegas Golden Knights against the number three Minnesota Wild. Uh, I predicted that... Uh, Vegas would win the series in seven games. Uh, Minnesota is very feisty. Uh, they're a good team. And uh, game one was just an absolute barn burner. Uh, it was nothing-nothing going into overtime. Just a complete goalie battle. Mark andre Fleury for Vegas, Cam Talbot of the Minnesota Wild, both on their A game, both making ridiculous saves. And then about three and a half minutes into the first overtime of game one, Joel Erickson-Ackby, Buried the puck for the Wild. It was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a wrister that he seemed to kind of flub on, and it just kind of rolled right through Fleury's five hole. But it nonetheless it put the Wild up one game to nothing. And then uh, with that start in Game One for Vegas goalie Mark Andre Fleury he became the first goalie in NHL history to play in 15 consecutive Stanley Cup playoffs. So he's won a couple Stanley Cups. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, and uh, 15 straight seasons of playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs, that is definitely a record that uh, is going to take a while to be beaten. But in Game 2, Vegas came roaring back uh, after Minnesota jumped out to an early lead. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury stopped 34 of 35 shots. Vegas just really connected, got their offense going, uh, scored three unanswered goals to win the game 3-1, to one, tie the series. And then game three, uh, Minnesota actually took a 2-0 lead in that series, or in that game, rather. And then Vegas came back with five unanswered goals to win 5-2. to two. So that series currently sits at Vegas 2, Minnesota 1. So I predicted a seven-game series, um, and that's looking like a solid prediction because uh, Minnesota struck first, in these games, and that has kind of put Vegas on their heels. And Vegas has just put more pucks in the net, which obviously translates to wins. So keep an eye on that. But Vegas looks pretty good. They look like they're uh, finally getting their stuff back. But uh, the final uh, division is the Scotia North division. Now, this series took a few extra days uh, to get going because we had a random couple of regular season games to end the season. Uh, because uh, the Vancouver Canucks, of course, had that three-week postponement, so they were kind of behind the eight ball on that and uh, and so the Scotia North had to finish up the regular season while the other divisions were starting the playoffs, but uh, the first series in the Scotia North features the top-seeded Toronto Maple Leafs against the number-four-seeded Montreal Canadians. Uh, that series currently sits at one game to nothing in favor of Montreal and I predicted Toronto would win in five games. Now, that was a close, hard-fought game uh, in game one. Uh, Toronto captain John Tavares had a scary injury. Uh, He got hit and fell kind of near center ice. And as he was falling, Montreal forward Corey Perry was skating by uh, John Tavares and tried to get out of the way. So he lifted his leg. But his skate actually hit John Tavares in the head, pretty much knocked him out. Uh, he was very loopy, total freak accident. But uh, Tavares is out indefinitely, which is a huge blow to the Leafs because he is obviously he's their their top line center, he's their team captain. And Montreal went on to lose that game two to one. Uh, a beautiful game-winning shorthanded goal by Paul Byron of the Habs uh, from his knees as he was falling forward on a breakaway to uh, seal the deal in that one but uh, that series became more complicated with the Tavares injury I still think Toronto is a much better team than Montreal I do still think Toronto is going to win the series but uh, game two is going to be very important for the Leafs to uh, at least even the series there on home ice but the other uh, north division series is the number two Edmonton Oilers versus the number three Winnipeg Jets now Winnipeg had just been dominated by Edmonton all season. They lost six in a row. Uh, the last six games of the season, uh, Edmonton won. But the Jets came out uh, in game one with a solid 4-1 to one win. They kept Connor McDavid off the score sheet. And uh, my, my friend and former high school hockey teammate, Jets goalie Connor Hallibuck, had a ridiculous night in net. Stopped 32 of 33 shots. Pretty much uh, carried the Jets to victory. And that was the same tune in game two, uh, because uh, Winnipeg uh, was able to keep McDavid off the score sheet again and take a nothing-to-nothing tie into overtime, where uh, in overtime, Paul Stastny buried an absolute wicked shot uh, through the fir- halfway through the first overtime or so to... Uh, give the Winnipeg Jets a 2-0 series lead. 1-0 victory in the game, 2-0 series lead, and uh, Hellebuck again in net stopped all 38 of the shots he faced in that game. Just uh, what a a turn of events. Uh, I predicted Edmonton would win the series in five games, but the Winnipeg Jets currently hold a 2-0 series lead. So that prediction in games is wrong, but Edmonton lost both of their games on home ice. So they have to go to Winnipeg down 0-2, and they face a must-win uh, in Game 3 in Winnipeg. But the uh, NHL playoffs are rocking and rolling. I forgot to mention, in the uh, Colorado series uh, in the Honda West Division, uh, Colorado and St. Louis, Colorado forward Nazem Kadri just absolutely crushed St. Louis Blues defenseman Justin Falk with a, uh, a hit to the head, knocked Falk, looked like he was unconscious, uh, Nazim Kadri got a, a match penalty. He ended up getting an eight game suspension out of that. Kadri's uh, uh, a repeat offender. Um, he's, he's kind of a Tom Wilson light. He's not as big, but uh, he does the same amount of stupid crap that Tom Wilson does. So Kadri's uh, out for eight games, uh, which is the equivalent of probably a series and a half. He's not one of Colorado's better players, but uh, he. Uh, you know, is kind of an enforcer on that team. So uh, that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. Colorado's got a a strong hold on that series. Obviously, they're not going to miss them for this series, but uh, that next series is going to be a doozy. But we are definitely off and running uh, in NHL Stanley Cup playoffs, and, man, it's a thing of beauty to see those fans rocking and rolling, and uh, what a great, great time of year we have with these Stanley Cup playoffs. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, and we'll do an NBA playoff preview. This past week, all six of the NBA play-in tournament games took place, so we'll quickly recap those, and we'll go over a preview of each series with a prediction similarly to what we did in the NHL on last week's episode. But with that play-in tournament, uh, the way that it worked, there were a total of six games, three in each conference were the 7 and 8 seed played in game 1. The winner got the 7 seed, the loser went to game 3. Game 2 featured the 9 and 10 seeds, and the winner got to move on to game 3 to play the loser of the 7-8 matchup, and the loser of game 2 entered the NBA draft lottery. So game 3 uh, was for all the marbles for the 8th seed, and that featured of course the loser of game 1 and the winner of game 2. From each conference. So in uh, game one for the Eastern Conference. It featured the number seven Boston Celtics. Against the number eight Washington Wizards. Uh, Boston came out. And uh, they ended up winning 118 to 100. Over the Wizards. Jason Tatum for the Celtics. Just put up 50 points and eight rebounds in that game. To basically carry the Celtics to a victory. And clinched that number seven seed. Uh, And a date with the Brooklyn Nets that we'll talk about in a minute. So, Washington then moved on to game three. But in game two uh, in the Eastern Conference, the number nine Indiana Pacers took on the number 10 Charlotte Hornets. Indiana just absolutely pummeled the Charlotte Hornets by a score of 144 to 117. Just complete domination by the Pacers. That uh, victory sent the Hornets, to the NBA Draft Lottery and sent the Pacers to Game 3 to take on the Washington Wizards. And in that Game 3 matchup, the winner moved on to the 8th seed. Well, what, uh, what happened was Washington returned the favor to the Indiana Pacers, and the Wizards just completely clobbered the Pacers by a score of 142-115. to 115. So that sent the Indiana Pacers to the NBA Draft Lottery and gave the Washington Wizards the number 8 seed in the East and a date with the Philadelphia 76ers. In the Western Conference, game 1 of the play-in tournament featured the number 7 Los Angeles Lakers and the number 8 Golden State Warriors. This was a matchup for the ages. Of course, you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the Lakers. Golden State, you got Steph Curry, an MVP finalist, and Draymond Green. And uh, Man, this game was just back and forth, came down to the wire. And who else other than LeBron James hit a go-ahead three-pointer with just under a minute left. He had a triple-double with 22 points, 11 rebounds, 10 assists. Uh, That go-ahead three-pointer that he hit was his 97th career game-tying or go-ahead field goal in the final minute uh, of a game, which is the second most in the last 25 seasons behind the legend Kobe Bryant with 101 Uh, Anthony Davis chipped in with 25 points 12 rebounds that was another ho-hum night for him just that's what you expect from Anthony Davis Uh, on the flip side Steph Curry scored 37 of Golden State's 100 points uh, in a losing effort so the Lakers have clinched the seventh seed in the West Uh, Golden State moved on to game three Game two in the Western Conference featured the number nine Memphis Grizzlies and the number ten San Antonio Spurs. Uh, This was another close game. Uh, Memphis ended up winning 100 to 96. They basically did that on the back of Jonas Valanchunas, who had 23 points and 23 rebounds. Just an absolute monster for the Grizzlies. Um, Not going to say he single handedly won the Grizzlies the game. Uh, but his thumbprint was all over that game, and without him, they certainly would not have beaten the Spurs. So the Spurs head on to the draft lottery. Memphis moved on to Game 3 uh, with a date uh, against the um, Golden State Warriors. Now, this was probably the best of the play-in games. It was the only one that went to overtime, and in that matchup, the Memphis Grizzlies hung on and won in overtime, 117-112. to 112. So that sent the Golden State Warriors into the draft lottery and secured the number eight seed for the Memphis Grizzlies. Now, that officially means that we have our playoff series set in the NBA, and we will start off our preview in the Eastern Conference, where the number one seeded Philadelphia 76ers take on the number eight seeded Washington Wizards. Just kind of rewind, back on April 6th, so just over a month, we'll say a month and a half ago, the Washington Wizards, according to ESPN's BPI, Basketball Power Index, the Wizards had a 0.6% chance to make the playoffs based on their record and where they were at in the standings. Well, not only did they make the play-in tournament, they secured the number eight seed by winning game three of that play-in tournament. So here they are. They have two of the more prolific players in the league, in Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. And, uh, you know, the Wizards, they're just, um, the way they've been playing, I think this is, the 76ers are on upset alert. Uh, Yeah, Joel Embiid is a finalist for the MVP for the 76ers. They still have Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris. They're still a great team. Uh, I'm picking the 76ers to win the series but I'm going to go and say that the Wizards win three games in that series and take it to seven. So give me the 76ers in seven games there. Uh, the next series is the number two seed Brooklyn Nets against the number seven seed Boston Celtics, your other play-in series game winner. Uh, well, after the James Harden trade was complete this year in the NBA, that uh, in which Brooklyn acquired him for uh, uh, King's Ransom, I predicted that Brooklyn would win the NBA championship. Brooklyn's fully healthy. James Harden's coming back. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving finished out the regular season playing together. And uh, when that team is clicking, uh, you're not going to beat them. Uh, They have three of the top, we'll say, eight players in the league uh, between Harden, Irving, and Durant. Boston is a great team. Of course, Jason Tatum uh, had 50 points in that play-in game. And uh, they still have Marcus Smart on the defensive end of the ball. The key for Brooklyn is going to be playing defense. Can they play enough defense to keep Boston at bay and keep Tatum uh, into the uh, high teens, low 20s in points? Because if they can do that, uh, they are certainly going to score enough points of their own with their three all-stars. And so I like Brooklyn to win the series. Uh, Give me Brooklyn in six games against the Celtics. Uh, The next series, the number three seed Milwaukee Bucks take on the number six seed Miami Heat. Okay, Miami is your defending Eastern Conference champion. They represented the East in the NBA Finals last year in the bubble, but the Milwaukee Bucks have some dude named Giannis Antetokounmpo. They also have Chris Middleton and uh, Drew Holiday, and that team is stacked. So uh, they can play defense they can also score points. Now, I do like Miami, and it would not surprise me if Miami ended up beating Milwaukee, because I'm pretty sure they did last year in the playoffs as well. The, the X factor for Miami, of course, they have Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, uh, but the X factor for Miami is Tyler Hero. If if he can get hot from beyond the arc and start knocking some threes down, Milwaukee's going to be in trouble. But uh, I think this is a good year for, for Milwaukee Uh, They're in a a tough Eastern Conference, top heavy Eastern Conference. Um, I don't know if they're going to make it um, to the NBA Finals, but um, I do like them to get past Miami Heat. Give me Milwaukee in six games. The next uh, and final series of the Eastern Conference is the number four seed New York Knicks against the number five seed Atlanta Hawks. Who in the hell would have predicted that the New York Knicks would be the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference this year? Uh, nobody. I'm pretty sure Knicks fans didn't even see that coming. But such is the case, and here they are. And they have an all-star in Julius Randle who is proving to be an elite, top-level player. Of course, on the Atlanta side, you got Trey Young, Clint Capella. Uh, you know that team. Trey Young. If Trey Young gets hot, it's it's game over. Uh, That dude can shoot from anywhere. He can hit from the logo. Um, I think this is going to be a close series. We'll see if the Knicks are truly legit this year. Uh, I think this is going to turn into a Julius Randle versus Trey Young series. Uh, And my money uh, is on Julius Randle just because of the way he's played this year. So give me the New York Knicks to win the series in seven games. But over in the Western Conference, the top-seeded Utah Jazz are going to be taking on the number eight seed Memphis Grizzlies who just dispatched the Golden State Warriors uh, on Friday night. You know, the Jazz have been up uh, as the number one seed for a vast majority of the season. Pretty much all of the season, the Jazz have been up top. And they have Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, uh, great scorer, great defender. Mike Conley uh, as well. I don't see Ja Morant and the Grizzlies getting past the Jazz. Uh, I think Memphis, they're, they're gutty. Um, you know, Jonas Valanciunas was a monster in that first play-in game, and Ja Morant is obviously one of the top young talents in the league. But the Jazz have been up top all season for a reason, and they have more depth than the Grizzlies. Give me the Utah Jazz to beat Memphis in six games. Um, number 2 seed Phoenix Suns against the number 7 seed Los Angeles Lakers again what a funky year who would have thought the defending NBA champion Los Angeles Lakers would be the 7th seed in the Western Conference uh, having to win uh, a play in tournament game Uh, that just that's absurd Uh, and we talked last week about the injuries Anthony Davis LeBron James had missed uh, between the both of them almost 60 games Uh, Throughout the regular season, which is obviously the main reason why they finished as low as they did. Uh, But they're still the LA Lakers. They're fully healthy. LeBron uh, with his triple double, Anthony Davis with his double double, those guys are firing on all cylinders. Uh, And in fact, the betting line on this this is the first time in the last 30 years that a number seven seed has been favored over a number two seed. And that's according to Caesars William Hill Sportsbook in Las Vegas. So the Lakers are actually favored in this series. Now, on the flip side, the Phoenix Suns, you know, they have Devin Booker, who is one of the premier scorers in this game, and Chris Paul, who is a great complement to Devin Booker. Uh, But none of the, this is the first playoff appearance for the Phoenix Suns in 11 years. So nobody on this team uh, made the playoffs or was on the Phoenix Suns when they last made the playoffs. Of course, they have DeAndre Ayton as well, big man, uh, another good young talent there for Phoenix. But I, I can't go against the Lakers. I mean, I, I think Phoenix is good. Uh, I think they're going to uh, win a couple of games, but the Lakers are the Lakers, and I like the Lakers to win in five games or six games. Rather. Give me six games. I said Phoenix would win a couple games. Give me the Lakers in six. How about that? Next series, number three, Denver Nuggets, number six, Portland Trailblazers. Okay, This is a very interesting series. Uh, Denver is, is, they've also been, they kind of floated around between the, the three and seven seed for most of the year. They ended up finishing as the three seed. They have Nikola Jokic, who's uh, an MVP finalist as well. Um, the trade deadline acquisition of Aaron Gordon proved to be exactly what they needed to catapult them into a top three seed. Uh, Jamal Murray is out after tearing a a knee ligament towards the end of the season. So he'll be missed. Uh, and then on the other side, the Portland trailblazers, the duo of, uh, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, uh, that if they get going, obviously Dame Lillard can bust out 50 points on any given night and McCollum can follow right behind with 25 or 30 of his own. This is an interesting series. Um, I like both teams a lot, and I'm going to throw an upset in here. I'm going to say that the Trailblazers beat the Nuggets in seven games. I just – Portland is good when they get in the playoffs. They're uh, two years removed from a a Western Conference Finals appearance uh, with pretty much the same crew of players, the same core, of course, with uh, Lillard and McCollum. So uh, give me Portland to upset Denver in seven games. Now the last series in the Western Conference is the number four Los Angeles Clippers against the number five Dallas Mavericks. Mavericks are my favorite team, my hometown team. I'm rooting for them. Luka Doncic is a top five player in the league, um, but on the other side you have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Um, That's those two by themselves. They can score and they can play defense. The thing, and this is a rematch from last year's playoffs. The Mavericks actually played the Clippers uh, last year uh, as a uh, playoff opponent. Clippers won that series in six games, and I think that's probably going to be what happens again this year. I'm going to say the Clippers in six games over the Mavericks, uh, but the Mavericks, if they can get scoring, secondary scoring, Chris Porzingis' health is going to be the key to this thing because if he can play like Porzingis is capable of playing, then the Mavericks have a legitimate chance because they've had a lot of secondary scoring from Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, from beyond the three. And uh, he, if he gets hot, he can drop 30 points on you. And if they can get 30 points from Luka, 20 from Porzingis, and 30 from Hardaway – then uh, it's going to be a pretty fun series. So that's going to be the key: is the 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 role player scoring for Dallas, uh, because we know Doncic is going to produce, and on the other side, you know Kawhi's is going to get his, you know Paul George is going to get his. So uh, my official prediction is the Clippers in six, but I hope I'm wrong on that. I'd like to see the Mavericks move on and avenge that loss from last year. But uh, of course, next week we'll we'll keep you updated on the MLB. Or the uh, NBA standings, and um, you know we'll we'll just keep keep moving forward with those round by round predictions in the NBA but NBA playoffs are back and uh it's again going to be another good year there's a lot a lot no a bigger number of quality teams I guess is what I'm trying to say this year in the NBA playoffs than it seems as though in past years and uh, I believe the NBA is probably the most rigged of the four pro sports so uh, you know, I it would not surprise me if we saw, you know, a, a, a Brooklyn uh, Utah NBA Finals. But uh, we'll we'll take a round by round prediction. But stay tuned for the updates as they come out as we get the NBA playoffs going. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball and we'll do a standings update here in the MLB. But before we get into that, this past week we had two more no hitters. And they were on back-to-back nights. Uh, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, there was a no-hitter thrown. And it had been a couple of weeks since we had one, so we were definitely due. And just what a a crazy year this has been. This is the eighth time in Major League Baseball history that uh, a pair of no-hitters were thrown uh, one or fewer days apart. And the first one came on Tuesday night, courtesy of Detroit Tigers pitcher Spencer Turnbull who threw his first career no-hitter against the Seattle Mariners, and it was the eighth no-hitter in Tigers history, the first one since Justin Verlander did it back in 2011. On the flip side of that, the Seattle Mariners became the fifth team since 1900 to be no-hit twice in the same month. In fact, Seattle is just the fourth team in Major League Baseball history to be no-hit twice in a 14-day span joining only the 1917 White Sox, the 1923 Philadelphia Athletics, and the 2015 Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, the second no-hitter was New York Yankees pitcher Corey Kluber. He threw a no-hitter against the Texas Rangers. This was, believe it or not, I found this odd, you know, a strange stat, was that this is the first New York Yankees no-hitter since 1999. With all the elite-level pitchers that they've had come through there in the last decade and a half, um, first one since 1999. And, uh, oh, yeah, Corey Kluber was a member of the Texas Rangers last year where he threw exactly one inning before having a season-ending injury in that game. And for Texas, my Rangers, this was the second time they've been no-hit this season, joining the Mariners in that and also the Cleveland Indians, who have also been no-hit twice this season. So those three teams uh, have been no-hit twice this year, Cleveland, Seattle, and Texas. And it's the first time ever in Major League Baseball history that three different teams have been no-hit twice in the same season. No team has ever been no-hit three times in the same season. And the way that this season has gone – I fully expect that one of those three teams gets no hit again before the season's over. And uh, if I had to guess, I'd say my money is on the Texas Rangers. Now, we are a quarter of the way through the MLB season, roughly. And we've seen six no-hitters that have counted. Of course, Madison Baumgartner for the Diamondbacks threw a seven-inning no-hitter in a shortened uh, doubleheader game, but that isn't officially recorded because the game was only seven innings. But that puts us on pace for twenty no hitters this season in baseball, which would absolutely shatter the all-time record. Uh, most no hitters in a season ever is eight, and that came back in eighteen eighty four. So it's it's been a few years since that. We've had four no hitters in a fifteen-day span which is the second shortest span in baseball history. Now, a lot of it, a lot of the talk this week, you know, after these no-hitters has been the fact that baseball, if you recall, we talked about this on uh, one of our baseball preview episodes, the fact that Major League Baseball reduced the amount of pop in the baseballs. Uh, They apparently were seeing too many home runs hit, so baseball decided to change the way that baseball's made and with the intent to limit, I say limit, the amount of home runs or um, lessen the amount of home runs that we see. Well, they're doing a pretty damn good job of that because the pitching has been outrageous this year. And to further attest to the strong pitching that we've seen, aside from the six no-hitters, there was a game on Friday night between the New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox. And in that game... That was the first game since uh, in modern Major League Baseball history, which is since 1900. They call that modern. um, First game in modern MLB history in which both starting pitchers struck out at least 10 batters and allowed no runs or walks. Just an absolute beauty of a pitching performance on both sides. And the Yankees would win the game 2-1, to one, but that stat alone just goes to show you that the pitching this year has been on another level, minus the fact that we've had six no-hitters, uh, four in the last 15 days, and we're on pace for 20 of them. Um, that's just what a, what a weird season this year in baseball. And uh, I think baseball, you know, home runs and runs sell tickets. Uh, I suppose elite level pitching does to a certain extent, but a lot none of no ace pitcher has thrown a no hitter. All the no the six no hitters we've had this year, uh, I wouldn't consider any of those pitchers an ace. Um, pitchers that you would go pay money to see, but nonetheless, uh, it is what it is. But we'll we'll do the standings update here. We'll get through this. We'll Start off in the National League in the NL East, the New York Mets currently sit atop at twenty one and seventeen. Philadelphia Phillies twenty-two and twenty-three. They're on a three-game skid. The Atlanta Braves—they're twenty-one and twenty-four. Seven games back of the Mets. Uh, the Braves got some bad news this week. Starting pitcher who Oscar Yanoa—he's going to be out at least two months after fracturing his right hand when he punched a dugout bench. So I suppose he would get the bonehead of the week award if there was one, and the Braves have been playing some damn good baseball, and Huascar Oscar Yanoa has been a big part of that. He went, he threw four or five quality starts in a row before he had that stinker uh, that got him pissed off enough to punch a bench. But uh, tough break there for the uh, Braves, literally, I guess. Um, fourth place, Miami Marlins, twenty and twenty-four. And last place in the NL East, Washington Nationals. They've kind of been hanging out down there. 18-23, eight games back. They have a lot of work to do. In the National League Central, St. Louis Cardinals 25-19. Chicago Cubs, uh, they are 23-21, two games back. Milwaukee Brewers 21-23. They've lost three in a row. Cincinnati Reds 20-23. Pittsburgh Pirates, 18-26, and 26, um, seven games back of the Cardinals. In the National League West, the San Diego Padres have finally caught the San, uh, San Francisco Giants. Both them and the Giants are tied at 28-17. and 17. Padres have won seven games in a row, looking really good. Um, the Giants just put up 19 runs this past week. Um, looking that offense looks good as well. They've they've been at the top of the division all season. The Los Angeles Dodgers, they've after that atrocious stretch of four and seventeen, they've now won five in a row. They're sitting at twenty-seven and eighteen. But they got some, some bad news. They're starting shortstop Corey Seeger broke his wrist this week after getting hit by a pitch. Now the good news is is that he does not need surgery. They've listed him out for four weeks. Um, could be more, but they're shooting for a return in four weeks. Fourth place in the NL West, the Arizona Diamondbacks, 18-28. and 28. They've lost six games in a row. And last place in the National League West, the Colorado Rockies at 16-29. and 29. Now we move over to the American League. In the American League East, the Boston Red Sox, 28-18. and 18. They've won three in a row. The hottest team in baseball currently, the Tampa Bay Rays, in second place in the AL East, at twenty-seven and nineteen, they've won eight games in a row. New York Yankees have won four in a row, twenty-six and nineteen. So those three teams there are all on a roll, and uh, they're starting to separate themselves. Toronto Blue Jays are hanging around; they're three and a half games back of Boston. They're twenty-three and thirty, or twenty-three and twenty, rather. And then the Baltimore Orioles again. They're just camping out in that fifth spot, AL East at 17-27. They're 10 games back of Boston, and you can pretty much uh, cross them off the list at this point for any kind of playoff contention. In the AL Central, this is turning out to be a pretty good competitive division. The Chicago White Sox are still up top at 26-17. Cleveland Indians, 23-19, two and a half games back. The Kansas City Royals, 20-23. The Detroit Tigers, they've won four in a row. They're 18 and 26, eight and a half back of the White Sox. Minnesota Twins 16 and 28. In the American League West, the Oakland As, 27 and 19, the Houston Astros, 26 and 19, just a half game back. The Seattle Mariners, 21 and 24, they've lost four in a row. One of those was their uh, no hitter that they had, uh, or were they were the on the wrong end of a no hitter. The Texas Rangers, uh, twenty and twenty-seven. They're seven and a half games back. As much as they got my hopes up the first month of the season, it does appear that they are falling behind uh, the wagon. They are two uh, and eight in their last ten games. Uh, had a streak where they lost uh, six games in a row, I believe. Just a rough week for the Rangers. They had two shutouts in a row, one of which was that no hitter that Corey Kluber threw, but they were shut out in back to back games for the second time this year. So, um, offense has been a little tough to come by for Texas at certain times. But, last place in the American League West, the Los Angeles Angels, 19 26. Now, I've mentioned this stat, I think it came up in one of the first few uh, standings updates. Their pitcher and outfielder and designated hitter, Shohei Ohtani. At one point this week, he led Major League Baseball in home runs, and he also had an ERA of 2.10, which uh, at the time was tied with Washington Nationals Cy Young pitcher, Max Scherzer. We all know how good Scherzer is. Uh, Well, Ohtani's ERA was the same as Scherzer's, and uh, oh yeah, he uh, was tied for the MLB lead in home runs. So this dude is... He's a, he's just a freak. He's pitching the ball. He's got a mid nineties fastball, and he's hitting monster home runs. Uh, he is definitely worth the price of admission. Um, he's he DHs on days where he pitches, plays outfield, guys all over the place. Um, but again, we are, um, you know, forty five or so games, forty seven games into this regular season, a quarter of the way through it. One hundred and sixty two games is the target. And uh, we got some, some good uh, division races brewing here in baseball. So uh, we'll keep keep an eye on those injuries that we talked about and uh, plenty more to come throughout the, uh, throughout the baseball season with regards to news and updates. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. And that's where we do some quick news topics from the various sports. It's not as heavy this week, uh, but we do have some stuff to get into. We'll start off in the National Football League. Uh, The NFL this past week announced that all players and staff who are fully vaccinated can shed their masks at the team facilities. And I talked last week uh, about how the NHL revamped their COVID protocols for the playoffs, loosening the restrictions for fully vaccinated players. Uh, Baseball's done that. Uh, The NBA's done that as well. Well, now the NFL joined the party. And basically they said that players who are fully vaccinated, which of course is two weeks removed from your final dose of an approved vaccine, are no longer going to be required to wear masks while at the team facilities. And the NFL, in their memo to the teams, explicitly said that they are encouraging but not requiring players to get vaccinated. And non-players are expected to be vaccinated unless they have a religious or medical exemption. And this should go without saying, but Staff members who are not vaccinated are not going to be allowed to interact with the players. So, uh, you know, I've always I've mentioned on multiple multiple episodes before that I am a strong proponent of vaccination. I've got both of mine. Truthfully, I think it should be required for all players. That way, we wouldn't have to worry about uh, random po- uh, positive tests popping up. But um, yeah, so that's that's some good news out of the NFL. There was a trade that went down in the NFL this past week. It involved the Minnesota Vikings and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Vikings traded their uh, former 2018 first round pick, cornerback Mike Hughes, and a seventh round pick to the Chiefs in exchange for a sixth round pick in next year's draft. Mike Hughes is a good corner. He was a first round pick, he's got the pedigree. He just never fully developed in Minnesota. So he needs a change in scenery. Very good trade for Kansas City. Gives them more secondary depth in that pass-heavy AFC. It's a low-risk, high-reward trade for the Chiefs, who already boast one of, if not the best roster in the league. Uh, There was a notable free agent signing as well this past week in the NFL. Defensive end Ryan Kerrigan, formerly of the Washington football team, he is relocating to the division rival Philadelphia Eagles. He agreed to a contract with the Eagles. Now Kerrigan is a four-time Pro Bowler, and he's the Washington Football Team's all-time career leader in sacks. He has ninety-five and a half sacks in his ten years in the league. Uh, he's very disruptive, and if he plays very well against uh, the Dallas Cowboys, who are in the NFC East, so a good another good. Uh, Low-risk, high-reward signing for the Eagles, who um, continue to rebuild that roster. But uh, some other NFL news. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned uh, how Denver Broncos offensive tackle Jawan James tore his Achilles tendon while conducting an off-season workout away from the team facilities. Well, that sparked a little controversy because uh, the NFL said that the Broncos are no longer obligated to pay Jawan James because he injured himself away from team facilities. Well, to add insult to that injury, the Broncos announced this past week that they have just completely cut Jawan James and released him altogether. So um, not only is he not getting paid, he is no longer employed, which I get not keeping him on your active roster, but to cut him altogether I think is uh, that's a load of crap. And that's, uh, The, the NFL is making an example out of Jawan James uh, with his injury away from team facilities, and I just – I don't agree with that. I think that's pretty shady. But, uh, I, you know, what do I know? But moving back over to Major League Baseball real quick, a couple things of note. Uh, last, I guess it was a couple episodes ago, I talked about how the Los Angeles Angels released Hall of Fame first baseman Albert Pujols. Well, this past week the story came out that he was released in part to a verbal altercation that he got into with manager Joe Madden. Basically, Pujols was upset at one of Joe Madden's decisions uh, during a game, and he expressed his opinion—probably uh, not real pleasant—but he expressed it to Joe Madden, and uh, you know they ended up releasing him. His performance wasn't exceptional, so I'm sure that's how they justified it. But uh, fear not, because uh, Albert Pujols is just moving right up the highway from Anaheim over. Uh, up into Los Angeles because the Los Angeles Dodgers have signed Albert Pujols to a contract for the remainder of the season. And talk about the rich getting richer. Uh, of course, the Angels or the Dodgers rather are not getting the Albert Pujols from 10 years ago that the Angels got, but they are getting a solid player, future Hall of Famer who should be able to provide extra power to that lineup. Um, Pujols hit a home run in his fourth game with the Dodgers this week. So uh, he's, you know, paying off right away. Uh, Keep in mind that the Dodgers have been without first baseman Cody Bellinger since the first uh, couple weeks of the season when he suffered an injury. And there's still no word on when Bellinger's coming back, but uh, Pujols is going to lock down that first base spot until Bellinger does. So, uh, again, we talk about low-risk, high-reward signings. Uh, Well, that's one of them, certainly, for the Dodgers. la dodgers but we'll move over to the national basketball association again a uh, couple of award finalists got announced this week for league mvp you have philadelphia sixers 76ers forward joe Embiid, denver nuggets center nicole Jokic, and golden state warriors guard steph curry those are your three finalists for league mvp personally my vote is steph curry if you look at that warriors roster and see what they did To come down to overtime of that play-in tournament, I mean, that was all Steph Curry. Dude has been shooting at a historic pace. Uh, I think Curry's going to win it. For Rookie of the Year, your three options, Charlotte Hornets, LaMelo Ball, Minnesota Timberwolves Anthony Edwards, and Sacramento Kings Tyrese Halliburton. I personally think LaMelo Ball is going to get the award. Um, Anthony Edwards was the first overall pick in the draft, but LaMelo Ball's he missed some time due to injury, but... I think he will end up winning. But uh, some other news out of the NBA. The 2021 Naismith Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame class was announced, and it included some NBA players, WNBA players, and some coaches. Uh, Ben Wallace uh, of the NBA got elected into the Hall of Fame. He was undrafted, and he helped take the Detroit Pistons' to six consecutive Eastern Conference Finals in the mid-2000s. He's tied with Dikembe Mutombo for the Most Defensive Player of the Year awards with four. He was a four-time All-Star and an NBA champion in 2004. Chris Bosh uh, of the NBA drafted fourth overall by the Toronto Raptors in 03. He played seven seasons with Toronto before joining that uh, Miami Heat team in 2010 where he teamed up with LeBron and D-Wade to form the original Big Three that would go on to make four straight NBA Finals and win two of them. And uh, sad news about Chris Bosh is that he was forced to medically retire in 2017 due to a blood clotting disorder. But uh, he is now a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Chris Weber also joins the Hall of Fame. He was the number one overall pick in the 93 NBA draft. He was part of the Fab Five at the University of Michigan. He won the Rookie of the Year Award in 1994, and he was a five-time All-Star in the NBA. The final NBA player to get elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame was Paul Pierce. He was the 10th overall pick in the 98 NBA draft. He played 19 seasons in the NBA, spent a majority of his career with the Boston Celtics, and of course he helped lead them to that Uh, Infamous 2008 NBA title with Kevin Garnett. Paul Pierce scored over 26,000 points in his career, and he was a 10-time All-Star. There's other uh, Hall of Fame inductions would be international player Tony Kukoc, a couple of WNBA players, Lauren Jackson, Yolanda Griffith, and a trio of coaches. Bill Russell, who was also a Hall of Fame player, with the Boston Celtics. He won a couple of NBA titles as a coach as well. Jay Wright, who is the current head coach at uh, the University of Villanova, Wildcats, who are a perennial powerhouse in NCAA basketball, and then Coach Rick Adelman. So those are your 2021 Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame inductees for this year. But we'll move over to college football. And I came across this graphic. It was on 247 Sports. And it was a top 10 list of best college football stadiums rated by fan atmosphere. So I don't necessarily know. I guess it's based on, you know, uh, attendance, noise level, etc. But uh, we'll go down the list from 10 to 1. Number 10 is Michigan Stadium in Ann Arbor, Michigan, home, of course, to the University of Michigan Wolverines. Number 9 is Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska, home of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Number 8 is Kyle Field in College Station, Texas, home to the Texas A&M Fighting Aggies. Number 7 is the Doak Campbell Stadium in Tallahassee, Florida. That would be home to your Florida State Seminoles. Number six is Camp Randall Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin. that is home to the University of Wisconsin Badgers. Number five, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium in Gainesville, Florida. Home to the Florida Gators. It is otherwise known as the Swamp. Very difficult place to play. Number four, Memorial Stadium in Clemson, South Carolina. Which would be home to your Clemson Tigers. They, of course, have been a powerhouse these last five, six years and uh, look to be nothing but that for their foreseeable future. That is always a tough place to play. Number three is Bryant-Denny Stadium and that's in Tuscaloosa, Alabama home to the Alabama Crimson Tide. They are usually ranked in the top one or two uh, every year. Uh, They've made several national championship games here recently over the last decade really. Uh, They pump out NFL talent and uh, they pack the stadiums on Saturdays as well. Number two on this list is Beaver Stadium, that's in State College, Pennsylvania, home to the Penn State Nittany Lions. If you see a night game there, it is a complete whiteout. Uh, definitely a tough place to play. Uh, over a hundred thousand people there. And then of course number one, uh, how can you argue with this? Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, home to the LSU Tigers. Um, you know Death Valley as it's called. Uh, just a, a ridiculous place to play. That is a bucket list item to go catch a game at, uh, in Baton Rouge. I have no affiliation to LSU. Don't really root for them. Uh, but I would love to go catch a game at Tiger Stadium if I was ever given the opportunity. But that's going to wrap up the 41st episode of the Sports Island podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, this podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. Uh, Be sure and tell your friends about it. Uh, You can also find the podcast on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. And uh, as we get rocking and rolling here in the NBA and NHL playoffs, uh, we'll have plenty to discuss uh, over the next several episodes. So stay tuned on that. Uh, Again, thanks for listening. And until next week, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.